Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Frontside Podcast, episode 90. My name is Charles Lowell, a developer here at the Frontside and your podcast host in training. And uh, with me today is Mr. Will Wilsman. Will, who uh, just got back from uh, November, just walked straight into the office and is uh, ready to podcast with us on a very, very, very interesting subject, I think, today. We're going to be talking about acceptance testing in JavaScript applications, especially some of the techniques that we've developed here around testing React applications based on the lessons that we learned from the Ember community, uh, but really more than just React applications, really testing any JavaScript application uh, from the inside out, making acceptance tests for that. So I think we're going to talk about some of the challenges uh, that you encounter and some of the really novel solutions that are out there that we had nothing to do with. And I I guess we really didn't have it. We just more of a cobbling together of of various techniques for, but a, for a powerful witch's brew uh, for acceptance testing. Anyway, so Will, just to kind of round out the problem space or explore the problem space, like what are the, some of the challenges that you encounter uh, with an acceptance test? Uh, actually, let me, let me see, even back it up further. Like what is an acceptance test in a JavaScript application compared to what people normally encounter? Uh, acceptance testing or end-to-end testing, uh, it's a problem that every JavaScript app should face. Not everyone does, but they definitely should. And basically, it's how the user interacts with your app through the browser. And every part of that we want to test, you know, from the browser, triggering browser events, interacting with the app, you know, not calling functions, we're clicking buttons, and we're pretending we're a user. Yeah. You know, I know that when we showed up in the React space, that was not really the way that most people tested their applications. No, not at all. They're all about unit testing, you know, make sure every small piece of your code works. And, you know, to some degree, integration testing, making sure your components work with other components. But nothing's out there really for, you know, those big acceptance tests that you want the user to click a button and expect them to be brought to a page or these fields to be filled out, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's you know there certainly was a very high level of maturity around unit testing. Like you said, there are tools like Enzyme and Jest. I, yeah, Jest. Um, but I was actually shocked to find out that Jest didn't even run in the browser. Like, yeah, it's all virtual. It's all virtual. It's completely and totally simulated and stubbed. And you know that that presents some problems. Yeah, like the main problem is you know cross browser testing. You know, some people might consider that to be separate from their acceptance testing, but you should be able to just run your acceptance tests in multiple browsers and be able to also, you know, test cross-browser support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so if you're using something like Jest, you're never actually running the code inside Safari. You're never actually running it inside Internet Explorer. You're actually running it in Node.js. And, uh, you know, your user is not going to run it in Node. <laughs> they're going to use a browser. I don't know about your users. Uh, <laughs> you know, we like to stick to the pretty advanced. It's like, uh, go to, like, get com. <laughs> Enough of this Firefox BS. But no, seriously, it was, it was certainly a problem when we were kind of looking around because we never like to build anything ourselves if we can avoid it. But it really just seemed like there was not a off-the-shelf solution for writing these big-style 
uh, acceptance tests in JavaScript. There are some some services out there. There's a couple now. What was the... I think the main one I hear is Cypress. Cypress, yeah. So there's Cypress now. I've watched like the instructional videos, but never actually tried to integrate it into, into my application. Yeah, I think uh, at its core, it takes the same approach that we've been doing with, you know, how we're interacting with our tests. Mm-hmm. Okay. The main difference is, is it that it's a like service, like you have to edit your tests through their web browser, their web interface and use kind of their assertion library. Yeah. I'm not sure about like the editing part, but yeah, it's their assertion library. It's, I'm pretty sure it's their test runner and it's their testing environment. Like you really, the only control through that is like through their UI, through settings basically. And you, you know, you're stuck with those. You can't use you know other like i don't think you can use mocha with cypress although right. it's very much like mocha right it's not right right um and i also noticed that we'll touch on this later the assertions the like most of the side effects that were happening were happening right there in line inside your assertions um and that might be an opaque statement uh but we'll get we will actually get into that uh later yeah, and uh, I think one of the things about their side effects, so to speak, is everything leading up to a side effect uh, is a promise with Cypress. Mm-hmm. So when you select a button and click it, Cypress is going to wait for that button to actually exist before it clicks it. Right, right, which is actually pretty cool. Um, so that that's a, actually a perfect intro into one of the primary challenges with doing acceptance testing um, in general in a JavaScript application. Um, this is a problem in when you're doing it in Ember. It's a problem in React. It's really a problem anywhere. And, and that is, how do you know when the effects of a user's interaction have been realized, right? Yeah. And in Ember, you know, the, you take advantage of the run loop. You know, when, once that action happens, you wait for the run loop to complete. And then, you know, your tests run. Right. So the idea is that I've clicked some button or I've typed some key or I've moved the mouse and then I listen for the run loop. And when it's, you know, quote unquote settled, then I can I can now run my assertions because I know that, you know, the side effects that I was looking for have now have now been realized. Yeah. Hopefully if you're writing your app, right. Right. (laughs) Right. Um, But that actually presents some problems in itself because it requires visibility into the internals of the framework. Yeah. So Ember is, you know, built with testing in mind Mm -hmm. and other libraries like react just being a view library might not be built with testing in mind. So we don't have those like hooks to wait for, you know, this loop to complete, wait for all of these things to be rendered before, you know, you continue. Exactly. And so like, this is, I think it's actually kind of both a blessing and a curse, like because there's such strong conventions in Ember, they were able to build, you know, this, this wonderful acceptance testing regimen, you know, from the get go. Yeah. Uh, But, but like you said, that doesn't exist at all. Uh, in, in the React ecosystem. And so, you know, what do you do? There's no, you know, there's no run loop. There's no, you know, you're, you're, you're cobbling together a bunch of different uh, components and, uh, you know, maybe you're using Redux, maybe you're using MobX, maybe you're using, you know, you're certainly using React and all of these things have their own asynchronies built in and there's not one unifying abstraction that's keeping track of all the asynchrony in the system. And so that presents a challenge. So like the the question is then if you're trying to not actually check and observe the state of a system until the right moment like, how do you know when that right moment is? 
Yeah, in an early testing of like a side React project I had, I would basically, you know, wait for a state to be complete before I continued my before each. Mm-hmm. And in, in the testing we're doing now, that's essentially what we're doing, except the state is what the browser sees or what the user would see in the browser. So you were actually like querying like the... the yeah, so like the, I was using Redux. So I was in my app, I was saying like, you know, when the Redux app is done loading, you know, when mm-hmm. this loading... Uh, instance is set to true or false then you know continue the tests Mm -hmm. and so what that means what what we're doing is doing the same thing except observing like at the dom yeah exactly uh and what it means is we're actually you know to I, i would love to set this up you know and have a big reveal but i guess we'll just have like a big reveal is that you know essentially what we do is polling yeah. Right. So we, when we run an assertion, let's say you click a button and you want, you know, the button to become disabled. Uh, what, you know, there's a, there's an inherent asynchrony there. So, but what we will do is we'll actually run the assertion to see if it's disabled. Not one time we'll run it a thousand times. Yeah. As many times as needed until it passes. Right. Exactly. As many times as needed until it passes. And, uh, that, I think that is, at least to most programmer instincts, like an odious idea. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> wait, you're just looping over every single assertion how many times? Yeah, exactly. And it feels, yeah, it feels weird as an idea. But when you actually see the code that it produces, it just sweeps away so much complexity. Yeah. Because you don't worry about asynchrony at all. Yeah, and it's it's pretty genius. Like, if I'm a user and I click a button, it's loading when I see that it's loading. So, you know, our tests are going to wait until that button says it's loading and then the test passes. Right. And so what we do is we essentially, you know, we use Mocha, but you could do it with QUnit or any anything else, uh, is that when you run your assertion, you declare, you know, you have an it block, uh, or I guess what would it be in QUnit? Test. A test. test. You have your test block. And so that function that actually runs the assertion and and checks the state will actually run, yeah, it could run three times. It could run a thousand times. It's just sitting there waiting and and it will time out. And if that assert, it will only fail if that assertion has failed a thousand times or, or it it has failed through, I think two seconds is our default. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we default to the runner's default timeout to the runner's default timeout. Yeah. Yeah, Or you can set that yourself with how we have it set up. And uh, the other thing that comes from that is if your tests are only failing when they time out, you know, how do you know what's actually failing? And our solution to that was we catch the error every time it fails. And right before the timeout actually happens, we throw the real error. Yeah. Uh huh. Exactly. But the, the, the net effect is that you're able to write your assertions completely and totally oblivious of asynchrony. Like you don't, like we don't have to worry about asynchrony pretty much at all. I mean, we do, and we'll get into that. So I, you know, I made a global statement and then immediately contradicted it, but (laughs) Hey, you know, you got to be controversial, but for the most part, asynchrony just disappears because asynchrony is baked into the fabric. So rather than thinking about it as a 
one-off concern or a onesie twosie. It's just every single assertion is just assumed to be asynchronous. And so that actually means you don't have to deal with promises. You don't have to deal with run loops. You don't have to deal with anything. You just write your assertion and when it passes, it passes. And there's some really unique benefits for this and there's some, some challenges. So I think one of the first benefits is that it's actually way faster Right, it's which is counterintuitive. Fast. It's very fast. Yeah, you know, for all the loops that's happening, you might think you know every loop is going to slow it down slightly, but it really doesn't. Like our tests, each test, like even though it asserts like five or six times, you know, it takes like milliseconds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the test itself might only loop twice. So right, exactly. Whereas if you're waiting for a run loop to settle, you might have some. You know, you click a button, it disables. It also fires off an AJAX request and does all this stuff. But if all my assertion wants to know is, is this button disabled, then I only need to assert until that has happened. I don't need to wait until the, all the side effects have mm-hmm. settled and then do the assertion. I just know, hey, this, my assertion, the thing that I was waiting for, that happened. Let's move on. Yeah, and so it's so, so fast. And that was actually... I didn't predict that, but I was definitely pleasantly surprised. Yeah, that was a very nice surprise. And all of our tests ran so much quicker than they would have, like in a run loop environment with Ember or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was, um, we actually had come off, we had just come off a project um, where we were were having that thing, that exact problem, uh, which was that, yeah, our animations were slow and they were slowing, or the animations were fine. They were perfect, but they were, <laughs> but they were slowing down the tests. Yeah, so I think in that project, uh, it was like thirty-minute tests mm-hmm. for the whole suite run. Yeah, to which I'll add a public service announcement. I think this is a conjecture, but I do believe that animations are best applied not to individual components, but by the thing that uses a component. So I shouldn't have an animation that's like implicit to a dialogue. It should be the thing that's showing the dialogue that gets to decide the animation to use. Anyway, just throw that out there (laughs) because animations are about context. And so the context should provide the animation, not the individual atom. Anyway, moving on. It's another podcast. Yeah, (laughs) that's another podcast right there. So, but there's also, this does present some challenges or requires code to be structured in a way that facilitates this. So there, there are some, there are some challenges with this approach. Some, some things you need to be aware of if you're using this kind of uh, system. I guess we have we have a we've we've kind of settled on a name for what we call these types of assertions and these types of systems. Yeah, uh, we call them convergent assertions because you're converging on something to happen. You know, it's going over and over until it happens. You know? Right. And yeah, and uh, a lot of these challenges that we come across are things that you might not think of. Where like there's a few instances of false positives that mm-hmm. happen with these convergent assertions. Right. So like, what would be an example there? So, like, uh, the most common example that I'm seeing so far is when you're asserting that something didn't happen. Mm, so right. that would immediately pass. But if it takes your app a few seconds <laughs> yeah. for it to actually happen, then, you know, you could still have an actual failure, but your test passed immediately. Right, right. So so what's, what's the countermeasure then? Uh, we invert our assertions. So we make sure they fail for a certain amount of time. Right. So the normal case... Right, where you just want to say, I want to make sure that my state converges to this particular state. All right. I said fail at first. I meant pass. We have to make sure it passes for a certain period of time. So, yeah, the normal way is, you know, it fails until it passes and then it passes. 
uh, when you invert one of these convergent assertions, uh, you're just making sure it passes repeatedly. And if it fails at any point, you throw a failure. Right. Okay. And so that's like if I want to check that the button is not disabled, I, I need to check again and again and again and again. Until you're comfortable with saying, all right, it's probably not going to be disabled. Yeah, exactly. And so there it's kind of weird because it is dependent on a timeout. You mm-hmm. could go like for two seconds and then at the very end it you know becomes a disabled so you just kind of have to take that on faith but yeah uh, in practice i don't think that's been much of a problem uh, uh no it's more indicative of like if your button disables after a few seconds a few then, seconds like what's up with your yeah what's up with your app yeah you know, exactly if you're waiting for like an ajax request or something in that example then you should be using something like mirage server right so which is man we will we, we got to get into that too um but we'll look, there's a couple other things that i wanted to talk about too with these convergent assertions and that is typically when you look through the readmes for most testing frameworks, you see kind of the, the simple case of, you know, every, the entire test, the setup, the teardown, and the actual assertions are in the actual yeah, test. The, you know, the it block in Mocha, the test block in Keen, you know, you, you click a button and then make sure it's disabled, then it moves on to the next test. Mm-hmm. And then you click a different button or the same button and you assert something else in the next test. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And yeah, you can't do that with conversion assertions because they're looping. So if you click a button in a loop, it's going to keep clicking that button over and <laughs> yeah. over and over again. <laughs> right, right. So so it means that you need to be very conscientious about separating the parts of your test that actually do the things, that actually act the part of the user from the part of your test that's about observation. Yeah. Um, so our solution to that is we move out all of our, you know, things that have side effects like clicking a button or filling in a form, all of that stuff happens in before eaches mm-hmm. and all of our actual assertions happen in these convergent it blocks that loop over and over again. So, you know, our before each runs and clicks a button and then we have like 10 or so, you know, tests that will loop and wait for various states to you know be true. Right. That means that, yeah, all their, all these assertions do is they read state and you just have to, you do have to be conscientious. You're not allowed to have any side effects inside your tests, your actual assertion blocks. Mm-hmm. But that's actually, it's a good use case for, you know, the whole act arrange assert, which has been around way, 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 way before these like techniques. Um, but here you're, you're kind of doing, we're doing like act and arrange in, in our before each, and mm-hmm. then we're doing assert later. And I think it actually leads for more readable Yeah, readable definitely. Things. And it also opens the door to something that we can't really take advantage of yet. But, you know, if you have 10 assertions with, you know, one before each side effect, you could run all of those assertions in parallel. That's and right. And your test would be 10 times more faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, or you wouldn't, you could run them in parallel or you could just run them one after the other, but you wouldn't have to run that before each 10 times. Yeah, but with something with that that I found is uh, if you move all of your, if we move all of our side effects to before blocks instead of before each blocks, uh, sometimes a test, three tests down that's waiting for something to happen, that thing yeah. might have already happened earlier and it yeah. already went away. Like a loading state is the best example of that. You know, you mm-hmm. show the loading state, loading state goes away. So if we move that button, click into it before, and that loading state test is three tests in, that loading state is already going to be gone. Yeah. So um, I think the long story short is we've kind of come to the conclusion that we would have to write our own runner, Yeah. Uh, essentially, uh, to take advantage of this. But that said, you know, we, we've kind of done some sketching uh, about what 
we would gain by writing our own runner. And I mean, the speed, I mean, we're talking about exponential speed ups, like yeah. maybe taking a, you know, an entire acceptance test suite and, um, you know, having it run in, in, you know, five or six seconds. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about these tests are already extremely fast. I mean, mm-hmm. each test takes like a few milliseconds or like tens of milliseconds to complete. But then if you can run all of those at the same time, that all of your tests for that entire describe block just ran like tens of milliseconds. Right. Yeah. So it's like it's really exciting and, and, and pretty tantalizing. And, and, you know, we would love to, 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 you know, invest the time in that. I've always wanted to write our own test runner, but never had, uh, never really had a reason. <laughs> yeah. Um, certainly not just for the sheer joy of it. Um, although I'm sure there, you know, I'm sure there is joy in writing it, but, uh, but that, yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to wait on that. But, but I am actually really excited about the idea of being able to maybe bring this back to the Ember community. Um, yeah. because like acceptance tests getting out of control, uh, in terms of the speed is I think a problem, uh, a, a problem with, with Ember applications. And I mean, I think this would do a lot to yeah. address that. I think how long, like if we were just using a stock Ember acceptance testing setup for, you know, this kind of, I think we have about 250 tests, uh, in, in this react app, like, um, yeah, like how long does it take to run? Uh, right now I think our tests take Something like 20 seconds, and that's also somewhat due to, like, they have to print the test on the screen, like, on Travis, so that takes a little time. In an Ember setup, you know, that could maybe take a few minutes. I mean, that's not that big of a deal, a few minutes, but, you know, compared to 20 seconds. Right. I mean, you're still talking about an order of magnitude uh, difference. And, you know, using this, I think you could get, uh, you know, a 30-minute test suite, you know. Down to all the order of three minutes. Now, when we're talking about those times, we're talking about the tests themselves. Of course, the CI would have to download stuff and set up the image mm-hmm. itself. Right. And that, of course, right. all adds to the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Earlier, you mentioned um, we talked about like uh, Ember CLI Mirage. This is actually something that is having now been using it for what, like two years or something like that. It's just, it's impossible to, to go back to go back yeah. it is it's like you uh you know you come outside the ember community and you're like how is anybody ever dealing like without this like yeah you know <laughs> like uh a lot of the mocks are usually mocking the uh the function that makes the request and mm-hmm. it returns it in that function like that's what's out there currently like minus the mirage stuff mm-hmm. but you know once you use mirage you're mocking the requests themselves yeah and you've got such like great support for like the whole like factories. Um, I love factories. Hmm. I love it's it's something that uh, you know is very prevalent in the Ruby community, um, and and maybe not so much elsewhere. But the ability to very very quickly crank out high fidelity production data. Yeah, and you don't have to have files upon files of fixtures. Yeah. Exactly. And, and you can change if, if something about your schema changes, you can just change the factory and now your test data is like up and running. Um, so, you know, Ember has this tool called Mirage, which is just, you know, has, has Mirage, which is just, like I said, it's so fantastic. Oh yeah. It's also got support for like running your application, you know, not just in your tests, but you can actually run your application with Mirage on and oh right yeah and you've got now like the most incredible rapid prototyping tool yeah because you don't need to connect to a server to see like fake data right right and in fact we were even talking about this yesterday to a potential client and like you know they're trying to you know they've got uh to to present something to like 
investors. And how wonderful is it to just be like, you know what? We just don't want to invest in all, like we don't want to move the inertia like invest the the money to generate the force to like move the inertia of a back end. Yeah. You know, and especially in this particular use case, the back end was going to be really, really heavy. Yeah. Uh, and there were some questions about the back end that we couldn't address quite yet, but we wanted to start working on something that we could show, something demoable. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, Mirage is just so wonderful for that. But again, Mirage is you know, it's, it's a Ember specific project. Right. Um, and so the question was, is like, how are we going to, to use that? And you actually took this on yourself. Mm-hmm. Like I just saw this pop up one day and boom, you converted Ember Mirage to vanilla JavaScript. <laughs> <laughs> now I want to, so I, I did, I did extract it, but the lion's share of the credit goes to the developers of Mirage themselves. Uh, you know, Sam, uh, Selikoff and, uh, you know, the Mirage community, like, they built Mirage not using much of Ember. Like there were some utilities that they uh, were using, like, you know, but mainly things like string helpers to convert between camel case and, and dash case and, you know, using a broccoli build or using an Ember CLI build. Yeah, that was one of the challenges that we came across using Mirage outside of Ember mm-hmm. was, you know, how do we auto load this Mirage folder with all this Mirage config and Mirage factories right. and models, right. etc. Right. The internals were all just straight up JavaScript classes for the most part. And so extracting it, it was a lot of work, but 90% of the work was already done. It only took like three or four days to do it. Amazing. Yeah, so it was it was it was actually a really like pleasant experience. I was able to swap out all of like the Ember string helpers for Lodash. So now it's good to go. It's based on, it it shares a Git history with Ember CLI Mirage. So it's basically a, a fork, mm-hmm. uh, like a very heavily patched Ember CLI Mirage. But I keep it up to date uh, so that it doesn't nice. you know. Yeah, so I think I mean that, the last time I merged in from Master is about uh, was about mm, a month ago. Uh, something like that because it's got all the features that we need but you know it's not a big deal to like rebase or to uh or just to merge merge it on over in because yeah it's a it's a really straightforward set of patches is there any talk with the uh creators of ember mirage about getting this you know upstream so i've talked a little bit with sam about it and from what i can tell his feeling on it is like hey my goal right now is to focus on this being like the best testing and data like stubbing platform for Ember. Mm-hmm. Um, anything that happens out there out, outside of that scope, that's great. Um, and I certainly won't get in the way of it, but you know, I'm pretty maxed out in terms of the open source credits that I can have to spend. <laughs> and there hasn't been much motion there. I'm kind of happy where it is right now. I would like to see it merged into upstream. Mm-hmm. I think it would be great to have basically the, this Mirage server and then have Ember CLI bindings. Yeah, it. yeah. I was going to say, like, either another Ember CLI specific package for Mirage, or maybe mm-hmm. to make it a non breaking change or something, just like yeah. an Ember specific entry point. Right, exactly. And I, I think that's definitely doable if someone wants to take it on. I will say, like, we have been using this extracted plain vanilla JavaScript Mirage server now for what, almost six months? Yeah. And, and it really hasn't 
Yeah, I don't think I ran into like one issue with that. Yeah, I mean, it's solid. It's really, really good. Um, so kudos to the Mirage team for doing that. Uh, and if anybody is interested in using Mirage in their projects, it's it's definitely there and we'll put it in the uh, show notes. Yeah, we've, got, we've called it Mirage Server. Mirage Server, yeah. So, I, you know, I don't know, maybe it's time to like reopen that conversation, but it has become a very integral and critical piece of the way that we test our yeah. JavaScript applications now. So what are the, what are the really the, the, the foundations of it? We've got, we're using Mirage. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're using these convergent assertions. We're using Mocha. Uh, although that's really, you know, yeah, we have, you know, jQuery and try jQuery just to help us out with, you know, interacting with the browser as a user would. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think one of the big challenges with that actually, uh, I just remembered was, you know, triggering changes in React. Yeah. I think this is pretty specific to React. You know, you might run into problems with the view. I don't know. I haven't mm-hmm. messed with view. But in React, uh, at least I think 15 or React 16, one of them, they changed the descriptor of the value property on an element so that they can appropriately like, uh, interact with it, like make changes, watch for changes, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So when you set this value property using jQuery or just straight up dot value, that change event isn't triggered in React. Your on-chain handlers are never Wait, called. Wait, they actually update the JavaScript property descriptor of the DOM element? Yes. Boo. Yeah. So there's this nice little helper out there called React Trigger Change. You right. know, I dug through it, and uh, I've stripped some of it down to just be for like more modern browsers, more modern React, but there's a lot of good code in there. And basically, it just like... Uh, caches that descriptor, updates the value, triggers the change, and then adds the descriptor back, and that ends up triggering that React okay. element. <laughs> yeah, so that calls your handlers, and right. that's how we get around that. Right. There's a there's a, a few fun little hacks there, but I think it is good to tie that into a larger point: is that the n- amount of touch that you have with the framework is actually very low. Yeah. So the amount of affordances that we've had to make just for react there's that that you just mentioned mm-hmm. and i is there not there's not much else i mean we had to write a test harness to yeah. mount the app but yeah. that's like the um our describe application helpers right. pretty react specific so you know, right. we have to render it and right. set up our mirage server etc right. but, but that's the application specific yeah, setup that, that's one file so right. like uh you know your goal for acceptance test is you want to be able to have a refactor and your acceptance test still pass right so what if that refactor involves switching libraries right. if you're writing ember acceptance tests you're gonna have to rewrite all your acceptance tests right that's a huge downside right so you know with this method of you know interacting with the actual library very little we have that one file that sets up our app and then we have that one trigger change helper you know we remove those we can use whatever framework we want underneath us and our test would still work yeah exactly and i think that we actually could theoretically and and I, i i honestly i have enough confidence in this style that we're developing the test now we could refactor this application to ember yeah. and not have to write, rewrite our tests yeah exactly in fact the tests would be an aid to do that yeah and the test would be faster than ember testing with that yeah. run loop problem exactly i mean that's really something to think about or you know to think on is like wow you know you're really at this point completely not completely but very loosely coupled to the actual internal library code Mm -hmm. um which is you know one of the goals of a nice big acceptance test is to be able to make major changes break big bones uh and be able to set them and you know have your acceptance test suite be you know the bulwark that holds it all together yeah 
So I actually don't know what a bulwark is. I just know that it's a really <laughs> strong thing. <laughs> I'm going to have to – maybe we could put that in the show notes. Yeah, uh, link to what that is. <laughs> so, all right. Well, I'm starting to think if there – is there anything else uh, that we wanted to mention? Any challenges? Any next next things? Any So like- one of our next steps is something we mentioned that uh, Cypress does is uh, they wait for elements to exist before they interact with them. And we're actually not doing that in our app currently. Right. And we don't have helpers out there for right. it yet. But that's very much the next step is, you know, we have to, when we go to click an element in our before each, you know, we can have these describes that are nested. So yeah, you have nested describes and you get down three levels into a before each when you're clicking a button. That button might not exist yet. Right. And especially since we're using jQuery, if you trigger a change on an empty jQuery element, it's not going to throw an error. It's just not going to tell you that it triggered anything. Right. So we get those skips that where that button's not getting clicked, and we should really be waiting for that button to exist. Right. So we've what we've what we've done right now is we're converging on our assertions at the back end of a test, but at the front end of a test, we need to also be converging on our you know, it's some state before we can actually interact with the application. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that, that, that part is missing. And that actually brings up, we are very slowly, but nevertheless doing uh, where we're collecting these convergent assertions uh, and convergent helpers in a repository, you know, on our GitHub account, mm-hmm. you know, where we're going to be adding, you know, these things so that, you know, you can either use them out of the box or uh, you know, use them to to make your own testing library. Yeah, and uh, one of the other next steps that kind of goes along with waiting for the element to exist is like when you need to chain convergences, mm-hmm. like wait for this element to exist and then click it, and then wait for this like thing to happen before actually running our tests. And that presents the problem of our convergences are waiting for that timeout, and those timeouts will accumulate. Mm-hmm. So if you have you know three chain convergences, that's now a six hundred or six thousand millisecond timeout as opposed to the two thousand millisecond timeout. Right. So one of the next steps is getting that tracking under control. So if you chain three convergences together, they're smart about it, and they still fail under the two millisecond time or the two thousand millisecond timeout. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, so we're going to be, we're, we're going to be collecting all this stuff that we're learning, uh, into, into some, you know, publicly available code. Um, we have a repository set up. I don't know if I want to announce it just yet because it's really, you know, it's really early days. Yeah. Um, but that definitely is the plan. And, and that way, you know, whether you're using Mocha or whether you're using QUnit or whether, you're, you know, you're using Chai or jQuery, you've got these underlying primitives that help you, you know, converge on a state yeah and whether that state is to interact with some piece of the dom or to just you know assert some observation Mm -hmm. uh is made about that state you know we'll be continuing on that but by all means you know get in touch if this is something that is of interest to you you know, let's let's make something happen because it's something that we're pretty excited about, and honestly, it's pretty comfortable living Mm -hmm. uh, inside the four walls of this test suite. Yeah. it feels pretty good. It does. Yeah, they're very fast, and uh, some some places in the test might need a little reworking. But you know, for the most part, all of our tests are very well written, very well readable, mm-hmm. and like you can just open up a test and know exactly what's going on. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that about does it for episode ninety. Wow, episode ninety. Man, coming up on that one hundred. Yeah. We're gonna have to have a birthday cake or something. Uh, do we celebrate episode one hundred or episode one hundred four? What's 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 104 would be two years. 
Oh, well, really? I mean, uh, two years oh, worth right. of podcasts. Two days worth of podcasts. Yeah, yeah, like if you go every week. Maybe we should celebrate like 100 hours or something oh, like yeah. that. Uh, you know, um, we can add up the thing or celebrate. I don't know. Be like, we've you, you have literally wasted two years of your life. Um, <laughs> or two weeks of your life uh, listening to the podcast. Anyway, so that's it for episode 90. And thank you so much, Will. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk about uh, about these topics with you. And as always, if you need to get in touch with us, please reach out to us on Twitter. We're at The Frontside. Or you can send an email to contact at frontside.io. 